I mean, I wrote the book because in my journey of becoming a thing that I am still very much in the middle of, I have recognized that there were, as you say, inflection points, these big transitional points in my life where courage was necessary to leave what I knew for what I needed. Hey, everyone, and welcome to today's show. So how did you like Evan Carmichael last week? Absolute fire, right? Well, let's keep the momentum building this week because today on the show, I have Dave Hollis. Now, Dave is a New York Times bestselling author. He's the host of the popular Rise Together podcast. He's a keynote speaker. He's a life and a business coach. He's also the CEO of the Hollis Company. That's a company that exists to help people build better lives. But his history, really interesting, includes the CEO of a media startup. He was the former president of sales for the film studio at the Walt Disney Company. How cool was that? He was a talent manager across multiple film, TV, and music networks. He's been in publicity, research, technology, all sorts of things. A really strong career in the entertainment sector. He's a philanthropist. He has the Dave Hollis Giving Fund where he acts as an ally to the needs of children in foster care, teen homelessness, uh, all sorts of things in that area. And it's been a key focus for grants in recent years so he can give back more. He is the father of four kids, a four-time foster parent himself. He's an avid runner, a sports memorabilia enthusiast, which is something close to my heart, and he is the proud owner of a 1969 Ford Bronco, which is aptly named The Incredible Hulk. There was so much unmoored feeling in now stepping into a new space where what I'd known didn't actually have a ton of application in what I was now doing. (laughs) Okay, so there we go. There's a bit of a, a quick fire understanding of who Dave Hollis is. But today we are going to be discussing his new book, which is called Built Through Courage, Face Your Fears to Live the Life That You Were Meant For, which is available now. My key takeaway for the conversation, this is a guy who has had plenty of success if you are looking at things from the outside in. But like I speak about a lot, if you don't have fulfillment on the inside, if you are not clear on your purpose, the other achievements that you create don't really matter. So enjoy today's conversation because we're going to get into how to make failure work for you, how to discover your core values, how to stop chasing someone else's dream. I was kind of there a number of years back doing that. And most importantly, how to develop next level resilience naturally built through courage. Welcome to Scale Up with Nick Bradley, Mr. Dave Hollis. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Scale Up with me, Nick Bradley. Great to be here again. I am super, super excited to introduce you today to someone who has had an amazing career, an amazing life, and has had some quite interesting, I think, inflection points, transformations, all that sort of stuff. So I'd like to welcome to the show, Mr. Dave Hollis. How are you, man? Oh, Nick, thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here today. Uh, There are so many places we could go. In this, in this story of yours. But um, I want to talk about, you know, your book, Built Through Courage. And more importantly, you know, how, what's the origin behind this? What happened? What are the events that led up to this book? Um, just so um, the audience can get to know you a bit better. Well, I mean, I wrote the book because in my journey of becoming a thing that I am still very much in the middle of, I have recognized that there were as you say, inflection points, these big transitional points in my life where courage was necessary 
to leave what I knew for what I needed, to transition in one instance after having been head of sales at the Walt Disney Company into entrepreneurship, from a career to a calling in the most recent uh, season of life, going from being a married human to a not married human, where my identity in many ways was connected to husband. And now what might my identity be in the absence of that being a thing any longer? And the courage that was necessary in believing that I could in transitioning from something that was familiar to something less familiar, something that was comfortable to something less comfortable, take steps every day a little bit closer to who I've been placed on this planet to be, why I have been given the tools and gifts that I have been given and how I might exploit them best is really where all of it kind of originated from. I just, I have this conceit, this belief that you, Nick, everyone who's listening was put on this planet for very specific, very intentional, deliberate reason. And that our work on this planet is to every single day, get a little bit closer to honoring the intention of that creator who put us here for purpose. Love it. Love it. And let's just play with the word courage for a second. What, what is it about that specifically that has, I suppose, you've resonated with in terms of your journey? Well, I think for many of us, there are things that have happened as a part of our programming in earlier parts of our life that have defined what being a real man or a good mom or a contributing member of society means. And those definitions, though often they were well-intended by people we love or crave love from, weren't necessarily always completely connected to our personal values, to our journey, to our purpose. And so courage often ends up being the ingredient that's necessary to challenge the programming that we were raised with so that we can stay true to ourselves so that we can in honoring why we're here, not why other people might think we're here, why we believe that we can be the light that we were intended to be, but maybe at the expense of keeping other people who've previously been comfortable by us playing into certain roles and and in some way might have to become uncomfortable as we now step into our truth. Um, It takes courage because man, as a human, it's easier often to stay in something that doesn't challenge the status quo or doesn't test the way that other people might react to you making them uncomfortable. And yet, if you want to fully actualize your purpose and potential on this planet, you're likely going to make both others and yourself a little uncomfortable in the journey. Yeah. So I was, um, I was in Sydney, Australia in 2002, and I got a tattoo on my right ankle, uh, which stands for courage. And I did that because I was about to leave Australia for the UK. And then since then, a whole, whole range of different things have happened. But I realized that I needed to have something uh, almost to sort of cement what I was going to go into. The, the thought being that if I could step into the things that made me uncomfortable, then actually I was going to have a, a greater, more fulfilled life. But, you know, one of the things that I loved about looking through your book is, is the concept that, you know, are you living someone else's life? because I certainly was for a long period. I'd love to sort of understand when you realized, you know, you were in that same position. I've, it's interesting because I don't know that it was a single time. I think I continue to uncover the signs of these things existing when I, after a 17 year career at Disney, found myself contemplating leaving a job that most people wouldn't. It was uh, as the president of distribution, a job that for many people from the outside was a dream job. I realized that there were so many things that I had attributed to being this as the thing I ought to aspire for, that at the same time felt disconnected from why I'd been put on the planet. 
And I couldn't reconcile how to make peace with what everyone else thought was great, what I'd been trained to believe was great, and why I didn't feel a depth of fulfillment or connection to purpose in doing this amazing job. And so my interest then in deviating from that map, as had been handed to me, was something that, again, required courage to say, you know what, I appreciate so much that you have created value in this thing that I now have decided is less valuable in my own life. I'm going to, in taking a step away from it, honor the fact that you want to stay inside of it, but going, I'm going to do something for myself. There, there were also in the decision to leave Disney to go then into work with my then wife. I write about it in the book that I, in the midst of knowing that I wanted to reach for impact, was reaching for impact in a capacity that was more about a vision that she had than it was necessarily in exploiting gifts that had been exclusively placed inside of my own being. And as much as, man, I'm proud of the work that we ended up doing and scaling this company and impacting the people that ultimately were, I had this moment where I said, oh, wait, I actually have been sailing off of this other person's map. As nice as it has been and as much work I have pride for that has taken place, I'm still disconnected from truly honoring the intention of a creator who was asking me to listen to that voice inside and honor what was being asked of it to step forward and be the person who might write the books or have the podcast or do the coaching himself, as opposed to supporting someone else in their journey. And part of it is when you decide to make a big leap, when you start to follow your intuition the fear that sometimes surrounds those big inflection points can compromise a little bit of your ability to conjure an imagination for what you might yourself do. And in the absence of some of that imagination, you're apt to cling to something else that feels a little more solid, a little more clear. And there's, again, nothing wrong with it, but I hope that anyone who's listening who might feel a little bit disconnected from their own map, their own journey, if you feel like in any way you've decided to start following or following in any way the wishes of someone else, the intention of your family of origin, or the way that society has dictated what a, a real man or good mom might do, ask, is that still connected to why you believe yourself to be on the planet? And is there something else that might be here for you if you were willing to deviate from that map? How's your level of clarity on that now for you? I feel wildly more connected to it today than I ever have, but I also appreciate that it's a process that will continue to refine itself over the course of the rest of my life. Like I've been uh, in a long distance relationship in the aftermath of divorce, and we've been playing these interesting games of trying to get to know each other. And one of the most recent games was this card game where you get asked a question. One of the recent ones was to describe yourself in three words. That was a, a card that I picked out of this deck. Yeah. And uh, the, the words that I described was work in progress, <laughs> which to be interesting, like to be honest, is like is, is, a, is a descriptor that I probably would have felt was something of an indictment earlier in my life because of not having yet arrived at the place that I'd hoped to be. And now I see more as a badge of honor, as this thing that will be indicative of who I am between now and the last day of my life, because progress as a value is a thing that is high on the list of things that I hope for in the life that sits ahead. And so I am, I'm going to be figuring this out for the rest of time. 
There's something that, um, again, our stories have got similarities. I was a, a successful private equity guy and had a, a bit of an epiphany too. But what was interesting about that transition was when I felt more comfortable with vulnerability or felt more comfortable sharing that I was not comfortable in what I was doing, I felt free. So if I go back to, you know, successful Disney career, you know, one of the most sought after jobs, uh, I, I bet you were probably chasing significance, promotions, titles. Again, I don't know the full story, but I was certainly doing that. What, what was the point there? Because obviously you're now on this journey, as you said. What was the point there where you thought, you know what, I've got to the top of my game, but it's not what I expected. Just explain how that felt. Yeah, I had, I had the luxury of just an extraordinary experience at Disney where for the first 11 years, I had 11 different jobs, 13 different bosses. Every time I was put into, into a new situation, there was a learning curve and a challenge. I was often less experienced than the team I was actually managing. And there was in that fulfillment that came in the growth that was required to be outside of my depth and learn. And when I got then that last job that I had for the final seven years of time, it was head of sales. I was 36. And that first three years of time, man, I was over my skis. It was wildly a bigger job than I was ready for. And there was exhilaration and learning because of the discomfort that was prompting growth. But after that first three years worth of time, the company then acquired Marvel Films, it yep. then required, acquired Lucasfilms. And in, in Marvel Studios and Lucasfilms being added to what was already Pixar and Disney, a distribution agreement with DreamWorks, the leverage that existed as the human making the deals with movie theaters was so strong that when combined with the strength of the leadership of the company, the filmmakers, all this intellectual property and uh, my own teams, I just didn't have to use as many of the things that I had as gifts to get straight A tests, straight A grades on tests. I mean, I, I wasn't studying and I was still doing well, right? And there was this moment in the backyard of my house, right around this time that I was crossing that threshold from 30 to 40, where one of my children in a jacuzzi next to our pool was asking a question, this game we were playing, Ask Dad Anything. Okay. And my kids at the time were nine, seven, and four. And my seven-year-old asked, what are you most afraid of? And the question, you know, he's asking, looking for scorpions or, or tarantulas, like, you know, the kind of things that kids are looking for and yeah. out of my mouth falls, not living up to my potential. And what I realize as it comes out of my mouth is that that, of course, was the whisper in my knowing, my intuition for years of time at this point. And now that it's been spoken out loud, I realize, oh, I'm living into my greatest fear. I am actually doing this work in part because I do like the salary, I do like the title, I do like the access and the significance, but I am not actually using all of my potential. And now that I know I can't unknow it, and it created urgency to create change, even as that change was going to not make sense to anybody else around me. Man, you know, <clears throat> it's funny, I had a similar point where I, I was asking myself the question, are you happy? Now that's, are you happy with the two million buck house and two Porsches in the driveway. So from outside yeah. in, everyone's going, well, of course you're happy, right? You've got married kids and actually my kids similar ages to yours at that point. And I decided I had to change everything, <laughs> right? Which is one of those like, whoa. But the one thing I did say to myself is, I'm not going to let my family suffer through this decision, whatever this epiphany is. So, so when, you, when you had that, that point, the jacuzzi moment, let's say, um, what did you do then? What was the timeline? 
from that point of like, I'm now going to lean out of this and lean into something else. Was it a quick thing, like a burn the boats type of thing? Or was it more, I need to be more strategic and plan this out? I wish I could say it was immediate because man, I was so consumed with the worry of what other people might think of me making a choice that made sense to me and not to them. And it was only in the aftermath of the decision that I realized what wasted time that was because no one was actually thinking about me when I was gone. (laughs) As much as they appreciated me as a human, they replaced me immediately and were not worried about what I was doing next. But I spent what was probably 18 months of time toiling and struggling, to be honest, in the not ideal version of myself, coping with alcohol, not being the happiest version of me. And it, interestingly, and this is going to be a play the smallest violin ever kind of moment, but I was approached to sign an extension to a contract that would guarantee me staying in that comfortable spot for four additional years as president of distribution that actually about 12 months after that jacuzzi moment was the catalyst for you need to make change. Wow. So I signed this piece of paper. In signing it, I feel frankly, at the lowest I ever had in my career, which is so contrary to how I was wired for certainty and for, um, you know, for comfort for so many years. I thought, oh, if you can just get a contract, then you'll be happy. And here I, I signed this piece of paper and it was the beginning of the end. And I ended up going on a trip to where I now live in Austin, Texas, maybe three months after signing the piece of paper where my wife and I at the time had a conversation of like, we have to engineer change. What if we were to come together and do work together for this pursuit of impact. And we came on this trip and it was very exploratory. Where might we move from Los Angeles where we'd lived for our entire life? And we ended up having a real estate agent just show us different neighborhoods. And I, without figuring out the financing, ended up in the house that I am sitting in in real time, buying this house before I had a conversation with literally anyone because I had to commit myself and and create leverage So that I would actually take action because I knew if I got back and didn't do it, that I'd wake up four years from then, possibly not married and and drunk and whatever else. And I just knew like, I have to do something that is going to change this game. And so for four months, I sat on that secret. First of the year came in and told my bosses. They did not understand, but were accepting. And the rest ends up being history. Yeah. Again, for anyone listening to this backwards and forwards, I think, you know, there's the, there's the romantic, romantic ideal that, you, you know, you can throw everything away and walk into this new area. But, you know, we've got responsibilities, right? And we've got things that are important to us. My family is my most important thing. Uh, so you've got to think about the context of those decisions and not get too emotional about it. So I, I listen, yeah. I, think, I think the way you describe that is perfect because a lot of people ask me questions you know, should I just throw everything in and move into something because I feel I'm not comfortable with where I want to be? I say, well, yeah, lean into it. Absolutely. But be strategic about the planning. So you don't go to the other extreme, too much pain. Absolutely. Now it's, and by the way, I thought that the hard decision was making the choice to leave. That was just the beginning of a string of very difficult decisions (laughs) that would require a lot of courage every single day because the, the, the choice to move into something new I, it was just jarring on an almost every single day basis because the environment I came from in a corporate environment, 72 countries, thousands of people that were working as a part of my team to a small business with a handful of people doing new things, there was so much unmoored feeling in now stepping into a new space where what I'd known didn't actually have a ton of application in what I was now doing. Tell us about the moments when 
if this is true, and I believe it probably is, that you felt you made the wrong decision? Well, I came out of an environment at the Walt Disney Company where, as the biggest media company on the planet, where we'd set records in consecutive years for the biggest box office years in history, I was operating with the best team, with the best product in the history of time. And I had a moment about six months into this choice. We made this choice before my wife at the time had a book that was very successful that acted as a springboard for a bunch of other things, but we made the choice before the book came out. So we didn't really know how things were going to work. There was a little bit of a scarcity mindset for me and we got to say yes to everything or how are we going to actually financially provide for our family now that that guarantee from Disney is gone. But truly the thing that was the most challenging in did I make the wrong choice was I had a team at Disney that had a nose for smoke. As in, when there was a problem, they were so adept at the history of how those problems had previously presented themselves that when even the beginnings of a problem started, they sniffed it out and before it turned into flame, they extinguished it. And when I was getting an update, it was primarily, hey, we almost had a problem. Our people took care of it. Good news, there's no problem. And now I find myself six months into scaling a small business and there were fires four times a day. Not smoke, fires. And my inability to personally have a nose for smoke or the team's inability to necessarily detect smoke before it turned into fire had me questioning if maybe I was the wrong fit for this small business. And I just, we had like such a blessing in that my wife at the time had an opportunity to speak with John Maxwell. We're backstage with him. He's written a thousand books on leadership. And I'm bemoaning the fact that, man, I don't understand why I can't smell smoke. There are fires everywhere. And he said something that was so simple and grounded in experience that I just ended up getting such a permission slip for grace with. And that was, hey, you can either have consecutive days without problems or you can run a small business, but you can't have either because that just ends up being the price of entry. Yeah. And that like very simple thing of like, oh, wait, you're saying this is normal normalize the thing that I did not appreciate was normal because I'd never walked in that part of the forest before. I'd only ever previously been somewhere else where I had a real handle on the terrain and had people who knew the terrain so well. And now I was exploring a new part of the forest where I'd never been and I kept slipping or stepping into a hole. And that was just the price of entry for what it takes to run a small business or be an entrepreneur. Have you, heard, news, of it's the, uh, have you heard of the, um, the visionary and the integrator? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, from Gino Wickman's book, Rocket Fuel. Sometimes oh, yeah. I find, I mean, I was in, when I was in my corporate career, my private equity career, I was more the visionary, right? I had a team, I had people, they did, they did the stuff that I sort of talked about. Um, and when I started leaning more into entrepreneurship, let's call it that way, I, need, I realized I had to be kind of right in the detail. Did you have a similar experience? Because like time check this, I mean, we're talking what, 2020? Is that about the time that you, when was the time you left, specifically left Disney? And then so when was the I left, you yeah. So I left May of 18. And we had an unconventional curve, as it were, in how the business ended up scaling in the next 18 months, in that it was very fast and was fraught with both, oh, wow, that's a failure, but now we're going to turn it into a success, and then another success built on top of it. But my, the experience of that uh, was, in fact, like we, I very much am more the integrator, my wife at the time, very much more the dreamer visionary. Yeah. And good news, the pairing, I think, was part of what had us thinking we could do this together in the first place. But 
I was not, I just wasn't in a position to appreciate the frequency with which challenging things were going to show up. It was just, it was, it was truly drinking out of a fire hydrant at the beginning. <laughs> I love that metaphor as well. It's, and, and how have you adapted to that now? So let's just to jump forward a little bit. So obviously you went through that experience of being, let's call it more entrepreneurial or entrepreneurial in the traditional sense versus entrepreneurial in a business. Um, so going through that pretty dramatic scale up, lots of momentum, you know, lots of fires to be put out, lots of energy, lots of fun to what you're doing now. Cause, cause explain to explain to us kind of what, what the, the focus is for you now and what you're trying to create. Yeah. So interestingly, as much as the scale was amazing and the impact was fantastic and we went from 800 person events to 10,000 person events, we went from books that were not selling a ton of copies to 5 million in a single year. There was uh, there was just a lot that happened in a short window of time. There also ended up for me being this transition that had me stepping away from the company and ultimately out of the marriage that I was, you know, at the time I was leaving Disney thinking I was joining forces with for the rest of time. And so for me, there was a wholesale reset on what next looks like now that next has no comparison to what I previously thought would happen. And at the beginning, I'll be honest, like I had a really hard time conjuring an imagination for what next could be. I was handed in some ways this blank piece of paper where there is meant to be both parts terrifying and exhilarating emotions around what it means for you to now get to fill out whatever it looks like. But at the beginning, it, truly, I was like overwhelmed in some ways with fear of, well, can I do this by myself? And what might it mean for me to start over? And after having scaled what I have, am I interested in starting over? And so I've taken uh, very deliberate and intentional baby steps in everything I'm doing now. But I also was given this gift, which I don't know that anyone who's listening is going to get the same kind of gift, but I will share it with you in, in the chance that you can connect to the same thing I was able to. I was on an airplane as I was trying to transition from being a supporter of the business to someone who might actually create on behalf of the business, going from an operational person to an actual personality, as it were, so that, yep. that's writing books and having a podcast or coaching. And I got sat on a plane next to Dan Rather, who in the U.S. is you know one of the most storied newsmen of all time. And for me, as a sign of how nerdy I was growing up, was my childhood hero. I mean, like truly... I wanted to be Dan Rather when I was a kid. And oh, wow. so I broke the rules of plain protocol. And for two hours, he was the most generous conversationalist and that we just had a conversation of what it was to do the work that he has done for a lifetime. And what it brought me back to was this 19-year-old version of myself, who at the time in college was an anchor of a local news station and a DJ in the vaunted 2 a.m. time slot who wanted more than anything to be a reporter like Dan Rather. And connecting to who I wanted to be before I'd become who I'd become was a powerful exercise in casting now this new imagination for what next looked like now that it was different than it had been. And so as much as the job that I have today is very difficult for me to explain to my 99-year-old Grandma Lee, I am in so many ways a reporter because it is connected to the passion that was placed in me at the very beginning of time that was most alive when I was 19 and that over time was denied as I pursued a career that was more about status or title or salary and not necessarily honoring 
the gifts that I was given and the passions that I have. And so I'm in some ways uh, just a, I'm blessed to be able to come back to in my roots and, and the thing that I think I had passion for at first, because I am not a reporter of news. Thank goodness. I'm not interested in that, but I'm a reporter. And then I'm taking a collection of experiences, the work that I am consuming and consolidating, and then trying to report back to others in the hope that they can have a breakthrough. They can have something in their own personal development journey that might see some of themselves in my own story as I am reporting it to them. And so um, that's where I find myself. And so I am, again, right. just kind of baby stepping. It's interesting because like the idea of scaling another company, we got to a place where we had 65 employees and it felt busy and big and at times was compromising some of the lifestyle goals that I have. I don't know that I'll get back to that place. I don't want to say that I won't, but I know in the, in the shortest term that I feel more connected to this hope to honor the intention of my creator, this reason why I was put on the planet in doing the work of reporting than I ever have, or at least since I you know, was 19 years old and was most connected to it. What a gift though. I mean, at what, at what point was that plane journey? That was in 2019. So I am just at the end of having my time at the Hollis Company. I am formally pulling myself away from the business to start focusing on what for me was going to be the first book I'd ever release, the first coaching I'd ever do, the first time I'm ever hosting a podcast, where, by the way, I also am filled with the most amount of fear, insecurity, and imposter syndrome in releasing each of those things for the first time. But my decision to pull myself away from the business and start focusing on it was interestingly timed and and i think in some ways like serendipitously I'm timed say, that's the word pro- that comes pro- to pro- mind. Provi- providentially timed to yeah. um, to this conversation where you i felt like back oh. at that now and go because again the other thing that we haven't talked about is the emotional strain that's happening through this because you know as i hear you speak about this you've got one change which is you know to go and support your then wife and you know there's a, the, the whole family connection with that you think that's the future that doesn't quite yeah. work out exactly what you wanted or how you expected, right? You've got the emotional strain of that. Then you have the plane thing, right? And you meet the person who then connects probably with the thing that you connected to when you were a young boy, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And by the way, though, it felt, it, 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 the part of what felt miraculous about it is that as much as that moment on the plane happened to precede my divorce by about six months. Okay. I was already making the moves that would end up becoming the version of who, of who I am outside of our marriage. And what I didn't realize is that it was a season of seeding, right? It was, it was preparing me for what was next in a way that would allow me, in the absence of that primary pillar of my identity, husband to this other person, okay, in the absence of what you were in identity, who are you now? I'm like, oh, I'm a reporter. I'm a, I mean, like, I mean, I'm a father. I'm a son of God. I've got other things that obviously precede what I do professionally, but I am also a reporter. I'm a person who is going to do my very best to use these gifts that I have to, in delivering what I report, hopefully have people have these breakthroughs. And so there was something beautiful in that sequencing and that timing that even if it wasn't something that I had necessarily hoped would happen in that sequence or that the events would have necessarily taken place have helped get to exactly where I am and exactly why now I feel like I'm here on this planet. Excellent. All right. What I'd like to do, if that's all right, is just get a bit more practical. 
for a bit because yep. I know people listen to this and there's there's a lot of as I said, there's a lot of parallels with what I've been through. I think there's a lot of parallels with what the listeners would have gone through too. But let's talk about things like resilience, um, values, how you've rebuilt, created what you've done. But first thing I want to kind of probe into is this idea of at the darkest moments of the changes, what did you do practically to to help you stay focused on what you have now created? Or or was it that you just had to go through the journey, go through the sea of you know, turmoil, so to speak, to be able to find that at the other side. Yeah. The first thing I did in a world where I had historically been a five years from now, here's who I'm going to be. I took that time horizon and shrunk it extraordinarily close. So I asked, what do I need in this season? And by season, I meant the next 90 days, maybe 120 days Mm -hmm. to create the kind of progress and momentum that will allow me to get to the other side of the thing that I am currently experiencing. But I asked that question against the backdrop of the five dimensions of health that were going to be the foundation for me to maintain the equilibrium to actually get there. And so in my spiritual, emotional, relational, mental, and physical health, What were the two to three things that I needed in that next 90 day period that if I were to commit to them, embed them in my routine, have them become my habits would actually allow me to become this next version of who I need to be. Because I, again, like my, my vision for five years in the future was compromised. I couldn't, since I had what had previously been such a handle on what next was going to look like now that it was gone, the idea of thinking about five years felt overwhelming, but thinking about what I was going to need, you know, between June and call it October. Okay, I can I can get a handle on what I need to do between now and October to actually feel good about myself when I'm by myself, to show up well for my kids, to actually make some progress that would allow me to contribute well in the work that I'm doing. So that was the first important thing. I mean, in, instead of that, body movement was huge creating space for peace was huge. I had not previously really meditated. I had not previously, you know, like carved out time to eliminate the noise. I got into therapy that I hadn't, I've always had been in therapy, but I'd never had a therapist like this, where I really tried to understand this relationship between self and the things I was feeling. It's a thing called internal family systems. But if I was able to better understand why I was feeling the things I was feeling, There was so much power in that. And so I, again, just like in each of those individual components of health, tried to identify what did I need for the next 90 days? And that was a game changer. Did you have people other than a therapist or or coaches, mentors yourself? Did you have anyone else around helping you with this? Or was this a journey of your own discovery? Oh, 100%. I mean, as much as there was so much that was happening in the work I was doing myself, I also, I, I, I wrote about it in the book, but like, I had this belief that people that I needed in my life would appear in the midst of the journey when I needed them. And I didn't know where they were, but that was like my definition of faith in this. And I, on a run one day, ran into a new neighbor who ended up becoming a best friend who was part friend and part therapist and part barbecue buddy and was someone who I needed exactly at the time when he showed up. I had in the pastor of my church, a person who for the first two months of my journey sent the same poignant 11 word message every single day. What small piece of sadness can I hold for you today? Like just getting that text every day was this reminder that, Hey, there's solidarity in this grief journey and you don't have to carry all of it alone. But like 
and I met the woman that I happen to be dating in the midst of this journey as well. Someone who (laughs) herself was about a year ahead of me in her own divorce journey. And of course, I was not in a place where I was looking to date, but was like, I was seen and had my emotions made to feel normal by this person who herself had experienced the same thing that I was going through and was like, look, you are okay. This is normal. It does suck. And it also gets better. And there was in some of the the empathy bridge that was created between the two of us, a hopefulness that was borrowed in a world where I couldn't generate my own hope. But yeah, there was, there were so many people that just absolutely 100% showed up in the midst of the journey that were complicit in the progress that happened along the way. Yeah, brilliant. And I know that in the book you have, um, you talked about um, some different habits already, um, things that you introduced um, probably more recently as you've been on this journey, but you talk about journaling quite a bit. And I think you've got some prompts in the book as well. What, what habits, and including journaling, how are things like that been important to you in, in what you've now created and what you are continuing to create? Yeah. I mean, journaling as a thing was not something that I was necessarily doing on a regular basis, but became a practice because of what was part catharsis, but also part of what would happen in journaling for me after the 20 minute or so mark is that I would get all the things on the top of my consciousness on paper. And then at 20 minutes, all of a sudden, something from my subconscious would pop up and would allow me then to dive deeper into a thing I didn't even know I was thinking, a thing I didn't even realize I was feeling. And it only was because of journaling or staying in that state for a long enough period of time that I could allow some of that subconscious feeling or thought to come forward. And once it did, now that I could see it again, I couldn't unsee it and I could address it. Um, the, The idea of doing anything around gratitude had always been a practice, but in the midst of a hard time, my gratitude practice was more important than it ever had been because the reminder that there's so much good that can still exist in the midst of something hard was part of how I could keep getting up. I mean, I trust me, I had plenty of super hard days and had a streak at one point of consecutive days of crying that would make Cal Ripken envious. But there were, you know, certainly, um, you know, so many good things that were still happening in the midst of a hard season. And the reminder of the good that could exist was the promise of the good that would exist, the thing that you have to be able to connect to if you're going to generate the motivation to keep going on the days that feel hard. Um, I mentioned my like carving out time for peace, but I really, I'm, I'm a person of faith. I have a relationship with God. And it was one of these things where I thought because, oh, I've gone to church through my life, or I'm a person who claims to have faith. You know, until your faith is tested, until you're forced to your knees, I don't know that you really get a chance to appreciate what faith ends up meaning. And so spending time in nature, spending time on a a rock at the end of a run or on a back patio on this place, I dubbed my patio of peace ended up becoming, again, it was part church and part therapy, this opportunity to try and mute some of the ridiculous noise, the inner dialogue, the, you know, stuff that ends up coming out of social media or the news and just sit in silence and become comfortable getting to know myself, my most uh, deepest thoughts, but also some of the insecurities that we're presenting to actually sort through which are real and what, which aren't. Those kind of practices were uh, just unbelievably helpful in the journey from where I was to where I am and are part of what will continue in this work in progress journey that I'm on. What's the most um, surprising thing that you've discovered about yourself through the journey to date? 
Well, I think the most surprising thing is I would have done anything to have not let the things that happened during 2020 happen. And I would have done so at the expense of me becoming the person I will inevitably end up being at the end of my life. Okay. At, uh, at the beginning of uh, the year, at the very end of 2019, I made this very audacious proclamation that here I am turning 45 in 2020, I'm going to make it my best year ever. And what I didn't appreciate in the proclamation is that I wouldn't have a say over how that best year ever would come together, that like the conditions through which I would become my best were not a thing that I had control over. And as much as I have no interest in reliving 2020, I'm sure many people had a 2020 that they also are not interested in reliving. I am 100% positive that at the end of my life, I will look back on 2020 as one of the most important and best years of my life, not in spite of the things that, ha that happened, but because of the things that happened. And so there's, um, I think it was surprising that, oh, wow, these things that I would have prayed to never have happened or would have wished wouldn't have happened will in fact end up becoming some of the most important things that make me the person that I am. And it changes, I think, a little bit of the way I wish that I could say, oh, pain is now done. I've filled my quota. No, pain's coming. But I, <laughs> I hope, right? I hope in some ways that having had a positive experience with the way that pain actually broke down muscle to build it back up or made me stronger and more resilient because of having to go through it, that maybe it just changes the way I think about having to go through whatever hard thing ends up coming next. Yeah, I think it was either Tony Robbins or Jim Rohn sort of said, you know, the things that happen to you happen for you, right? You know, but you don't realize oh, yeah. it at the time. But you look back and you go, actually, the resilience, the grits, the self-belief, the confidence, the impact, whatever you define it as, come from those sometimes what feel like very painful experiences in the moment. Absolutely. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. And the thing is, in the midst of that pain, it's really hard to believe it. It's, it's, oh, it, feels <laughs> it feels trite and it feels like a saying. And I... Um, I, I am a living proof that, of course, it ends up being the case. If you can weather that storm, it's the storm that's going to make you strong. And on the other side, make you appreciate, goodness gracious, there was so much progress possible because of the headwinds, not in spite of them. Yeah, brilliant. All right. Well, I just want to finish off with a couple more things, if that's okay, because this has been awesome. Yeah. It's, been, it's been as inspirational as I thought it would be. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> that's something because I love the book. But again, I'm always conscious of people listening to this. And and again, if they come away with, I, I believe that the right message at the right moment can change anything, right? So if yeah. someone listens to this and they hear something and it just resonates an action, um, that that makes everything worthwhile. So so if you're if you're thinking about, you know, people who are reading your book or they're listening to this. What's the one takeaway, the one message, the one pillar point that you'd like to get across to them um, to help them in whatever their journey is? Well, I tend to go back to the tattoo. Uh, it's a part of what I start the book with, but I have this as a mantra of mine for the last handful of years because it's just been such a, a thing I've had to personally come back to. It's a John Shedd quote. Yeah. Ship in harbor is safe but that's not what ships are built for. Uh. And I got it as this reminder that the life that I want, the connection to purpose that I'm interested in, the fulfillment that I want to feel, the happiness that I'm in, all of it lives outside of a harbor of my own comfort, outside and disconnected from something that might feel normal or like the status quo. It's in the choppiness of those waters that I will actually have to face fear and experience failure, but will in having done so actually 
learn and actually grow. And the thing that I got the tattoo for wasn't so much for that reminder of, oh yeah, you got to do that. It's more this reminder that I was built for that, right? The ship is built to handle those seas. And to anyone who's listening, if you are feeling stuck or underfulfilled or, or interested in deeper connection to purpose, you have to start with this conceit that you were built to handle facing your feel fears and, and overcoming the worry of what people might think of you failing publicly or doing something that sits outside of your comfort zone, because it's only in that space that you can do the learning and do the growing that connects you to the actualization of your potential and feeling more connected to your purpose. Man, that was awesome. <laughs> and I'm going to go back Thank to what you. I said uh, at the beginning, like, you know, the reason I put courage on my ankle was the belief that everything that's great in life, you know, lives on the other side of what can seem fearful, right? Similar, very, very similar to what you just said then. And I believe truly that people who lean into that, you know, are brave enough and have faith to do that, take action, are the ones that kind of, you know, achieve great things, you know, achieve their purpose into what you said at the very beginning, um, become the best version of themselves, whatever that means. Yeah, I completely agree. It doesn't make it easy. There are plenty of days where I wish the seas would calm. I am not interested in having to learn in the way that I am having to learn. And yet this is the difference. Like, I, 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 this sounds dramatic, but I really truly believe you're either growing or dying. I don't think that there is a neutral. I don't think you can tread water. I just, that you're either growing or dying. And the thing that you have to have as an ingredient in order to grow is discomfort and facing your fear and being inside of a place that isn't as comfortable as many of us has, have become. And uh, there's, there's somebody who's listening today who has, in some ways has decided to become okay with just being okay, or has in some ways had part of their identity connect to a suffering that they have become familiar with. Like that suffering doesn't have to be a part of your identity, but there is a part of our humanity that because it's familiar tries to justify that it's okay for us to stay inside of it rather than facing the unknown that might exist on the other side of leaving what we're familiar with. It's, it's yeah, going to be scary, but there isn't as much suffering inside of that new space. So there's actually the opportunity in growth to let go of it. So I hope that you feel courage to take that step and believe that you're built for it in, in, in taking that, that first step. Awesome. Awesome, man. Brilliant. So what, what have you got coming up? You know, what sort of projects are you working on that you'd like to share here? Uh, and of course, you know, where can people get in touch with you? And I'm also going to say, go and buy the book. <laughs> go and buy it <laughs> Courage, because this is only a small part that we've touched on today. But yeah, no, what I up? appreciate it. Well, I mean, I'm super excited about the book. As you say, it comes out on October 26th. It is uh, of, of a career of many, many highlights. This is a career highlight. I, I'm so proud of the book. But if you head over to mrdavehollis.com, forward slash book. If you pre-order the book, there are $500 worth, worth of thank you incentives that you will Great. get immediately in courses, in community, in a whole host of things. So if you head over there, uh, I'm working on a men's conference for the first time in my entire life, which is uh, an exciting and also uh, I feel like I'm out in the choppy waters kind of daunting <laughs> thing. And I have a kid's book that's coming out in February about... Uh, a tea time experience I have with my four-year-old trying to teach small human beings the things I am teaching grown-up adults so that they might have some capital T truths landing in their world before the world 
trains them to think in bad ways and then oh, requires yes. a book of mine as a grown-up adult. <laughs> so Dave Hollis is not standing still. <laughs> nah, move, not, moving at all times. Not in the safe harbour, my friend. You are well and truly out there, you know, uh, going through the the seas and, and making waves and all that sort of stuff, which is amazing. So, well, listen, I, I love this. I knew it was going to be a great conversation. I love the book. So it's been great having you on Scale Up. And I can't think of a, a better example of, you know, challenging, you know, who you were to become something different, scaling up your life, all of those things. I think we've gone through plenty of those examples today. So thank you, sir, for coming on the show. Thank you, Nick. I appreciate you. I hope to come back soon. Hey, thank you for listening to this episode of Scale Up with Nick Bradley. If you've enjoyed the show just as much as I've enjoyed creating it for you, then I'd really appreciate you leaving a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And while you're there, why not subscribe to the channel so you never miss a future episode? It really helps me, it helps the show, plus it makes it easier for others to access the content that I'm producing week in and week out. And finally, if you want more information about anything that you heard in today's show, to find out how you can join our community on Facebook, or to find out how you can get more help in scaling up your business and your life, click the link in the show notes now.